Welcome to our shadowy but inviting autopsy theater, dear listener. You are more than welcome to hang out with the March Madmen for a while. Let's go bone deep into the movies we horror fans love, shall we? This season of the show is our ode to the slasher film. Tonight, we are achingly close to concluding the first round of our March Madness-inspired tournament, pitting 64 slashers against each other, two by two, until we have figured out which movie is the greatest of all time. It's an idea only a deranged person would indulge, let alone come up with, but here we are, three maniacs in the middle of it all. The three of us and you, dear listener, our fourth mad person. Thank you ever so much for joining us. My name, of course, is John Evans, and via the magic of Skype, I am joined by my fellow cinematic coroners, Vikram Wheat and Rich Eckersley. Check out their IMDb pages when you get a chance. Gents, we've split enough episodes in half to take a break from recording the last few weeks. So in real life, uh, it's been a while since we got together. Rich, I know you've been insanely busy with a new project. Man, how goes it over there? Yeah, man, I am I am spilling blood to the documentary <laughs> lovers of the world out there. I hope you people are grateful uh, for his unscripted premium content that we're delivering for you. You have no idea. Uh, you know, I'm good. I'm surviving. I've, I've been I've been cramming in movies where I can in every little cubby and, and hole I can find in my life. I'm making sure that I can mm-hmm. watch people chop women up with a chainsaw by a pool because that's what matters in life at the end of the day. Um, and I'm happy to, to, to deliver on it. So I'm thrilled to just have made it tonight. I, unfortunately I'm going to go back to work after this. So I'm, I'm going to stick to water this evening. So just like, don't even bring it up. All right. It's tough life. I, I can see on camera, Rich is literally drinking water. My heart goes out to you, man, but uh, I appreciate you all the more for participating without uh, a little liquid assistance. Uh, Vic, I'm going to assume that's not the case with you. How are you doing, and what are you drinking tonight? I'm doing great, John. I had this is this is just amazing. Okay, so one of my kids hit another kid at school and got sent to the principal's office, and then his brother, my my other son kicked the little one for hitting the other kid and got sent to the principal's office. So they were both in big trouble yesterday. And I wanted to punish them by taking away their screen time. But that winds up being a punishment for me come dinner time. So I forced my kids to watch Casablanca last night (laughs) while we had dinner. That's great. (laughs) And today, when we sat down for dinner, I said to the kids, look, we can watch this show that we watch sometimes as a family, or we can watch the end of Casablanca. And they both picked Casablanca. Wow. Budding cineasts. I love it. I'm telling wow, that, that story really took some unexpected twists and turns, Vic. Right? <laughs> you, you made them yeah. eat their broccoli, and they liked it. I love it. That's right. That's exactly what it is, John. Also, I just I want to announce this before I forget. Uh, you can see this. Uh, there's a link to an article on our Facebook page. But you should both be aware that there is, in preparation right now, this is for real, a stage production of The Shining for the West End in London with Ben Stiller as Jack Torrance. Wow. If, if there's someone who can go over the top, I think he is the right guy. 
as yeah. as shocking and stunt casting e as that sounds, dude can do crazy. I would buy a ticket I'm, next time I'm in the West End. <laughs> I'm hoping I like so that we we won't get obviously we won't get the West End, but now that there there will be a large theatrical production of The Shining. A when the traveling production comes to Los Angeles, we have to go, all three of us, in celebration of season one of March Mad Men, right? Well, what if it's Carrot Top as Jack Torrance, though? So that's yeah. so that's my question. Who is the 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 B side Ben Stiller that would play Jack Torrance? Cut rate Ben Stiller. Yeah. Well, so for for instance, like when the producers came here. It wasn't Matthew Broderick and Nathan Lane. It was Martin Short and Jason Alexander. It's L.A. We're still going to get somebody yeah. decent. That's not a huge downgrade. Freddie Prinze Jr.? What, a, what about just <laughs> Martin Short? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'd rather watch Freddie Prince Jr. in that role. No offense to murders in the building and all that shit. Um, yeah. Either way, I want you both to commit to me right now that we will buy yes. tickets and go see it. Whoever is in the cast. Absolutely. Even if it's Jerry fucking O'Connell, I'm there with you. All right. Now, wait. Now, wait, wait, wait. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> what if it's Casper Van Dien, Rich, Vic? What do you think, guys? <laughs> Patrick Wilson. You mean, oh, yeah. oh, right, you mean clay-faced Casper Van Dien? Yes, clay-faced. <laughs> <laughs> hey dude i'll buy a ticket even if it's Clayface. i don't know about you guys <laughs> there you go All maybe right. he'll incorporate like a little yogurt scene into the into the play <laughs> jack and danny <laughs> yeah. share a little yogurt <laughs> it's in his contract that's wonderful that's a lot of inside jokes to anyone who didn't listen to our last <laughs> season but i uh, hope you did <laughs> go back and listen to it that's this was all really funny it was. Just to wrap it up, uh, I'm drinking a Raging Bitch IPA. Perfect. And uh, I, think that's, I think that's coming out in my performance. <laughs> Outstanding. Well, I'm going to pop a can right now, and I'm sorry if this is torturous for Rich. In fact, it's going to really hurt him when he sees what I'm drinking. Oh, yes. I have beer in my fridge. Oh, I'm so sorry, bud. Yep, I am drinking a Pizza Port Open Itinerary. An open itinerary is exactly what Rich is dreaming of right now. So very sorry, but it's out, it's in your future, bud. It's in your future. Mm. Cheers. Both the beer and the itinerary, I'm sure. Just get through it. So uh, let's get through an exciting episode of March Mad Men, shall we? I'm excited. Um, we've been off a while, so um, I'm 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 full of vim and vigor. We've got a peak franchise matchup to kick us off, and of course, if uh, you're you need a refresher or you're new to the show, Peak Franchise is the section of our tournament devoted to the heavy hitters, the big names, the name brands, the franchises that everyone is familiar with in the slasher genre. And we have one of those, the biggest heavy hitters in the bunch tonight, A Nightmare on Elm Street, directed by Wes Craven. <laughs> Another inside joke. It's a three seed in our tournament, which means it's a, it's a heavy favorite. And it's squaring off against Silent Night, Deadly Night. A meek and modest 14 seed. But we shall see how things play out. And I do have to say before Vic tells us about Nightmare on Elm Street or Rich, whoever it is who's introing this film tonight, 
I hope I am. Good. Yes. Okay. Because Rich is prepared. That's good. (laughs) Sorry to stress out both of you, but um, I don't believe we will ever accidentally or on purpose pit two films against each other in our tournament that were released on exactly the same day ever again. But somehow that happened uh, because these movies came out on the exact same day in history. And guess which one had the better opening weekend? You may be surprised. But Rich, take it away. Tell us about Nightmare on Elm Street. Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, yeah, definitely the underdog in this battle. (laughs) It was released in 1984. I actually don't have the exact day at at my fingertips, so I'm I'm eager for you to break that out. What's the exact day of this movie? Do you know? Oh, shit. I didn't put it in my notes, but trust me on that. (laughs) Okay. A Nightmare on Elm Street was released in 1984. Is it a slasher? Is it a vengeful ghost movie? Like, I don't know, like, at, at its heart, like, what this film really is, at least initially, but I think it's pretty fair to say that it eventually really established itself as sort of one of the, one of the, the trifecta of the, the slasher genre, at least in terms of the, how the 80s were concerned. Um, so it was written and it was directed by Mr. Wes Craven, and it was produced by Robert Shea. It is, of course, the very first of the Elm Street franchise, which would produce many, many sequels. And it stars the uh, always upbeat Heather Lagenkamp, uh, John Saxon, who I'm always happy to see show up as a police officer in one of these movies, Ronnie Blakely, and who could forget Robert England as Freddy Krueger. And, and let's not forget Johnny Depp in his very first film role. And might I add, not making a super strong impression on me. I actually felt like he was sort of like registered pretty low uh, in this movie. But um, the synopsis, in case you haven't seen it before, is, you know, you got a bunch of uh, corn-fed teens, or at least that's what the story is supposed to be about, um, although really they're clearly in Pasadena. And they're all falling one by one to Freddy Krueger, this mangled uh, dream killer who basically preys on teenagers after that they after they fall asleep and of course if you die in a dream you die in real life often in a horrific way so but uh nancy uh, played by heather is starting to investigate this and she's probing she feels like there's maybe a secret and that she has to unravel it so she gathers her her boyfriend played by johnny depp and they head out to try to solve the mystery of how to end the nightmare reign of of freddie i do have that this film did gross uh, a little over a million, looks like 1.27 um, on its opening weekend. Um, it was considered a commercial success right away. It eventually earned a little over 25 in the U.S. and 57 worldwide. Fast forward a few decades, and by 2021, this movie was actually selected for preservation in the U.S. National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. So this film has actually been recognized as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Will we agree? That's what I'd like to find out. Also worth noting, you know, in terms of the annals of slasher film and, and horror in general, for those who really love the 80s edition of the genre, that this was one of the very first films produced by New Line Cinema, who had really up until then was just like a distributor. And they used this film to kind of build their legacy and uh, to, you know, later on, like New Line Cinema was even known as like the house that Freddie built. I know that I've certainly seen that that vanity card 
at the beginning of many, many, many films over the years. And this is the one that was really like turned the lights on. In terms of my reaction, like I actually, I think I liked this movie better than I remembered. I was pretty skeptical after Scream. Like honestly, the, the shine had kind of worn off a bit on Wes Craven's films for me a bit. But this movie honestly feels so damn inventive. I like, especially after sitting around for this competition, watching the contemporaries of this era, you know, the bit with like Kruger coming through on like the stretchy ceiling still feels incredible and like fresh in this practical kind of way. You know, you have these great images, like a kid walking around in a half transparent body bag, you know, just like these like stark and chilling images. And also the, the color of blood in this movie for some reason is pitch perfect um, with the exception of Freddy's who for some reason is like a translucent translucent slimer green color uh, for reasons that are not in- incredibly clear to me. But like, otherwise this thing feels like very like flesh and blood to me. And, you know, it's got so many of these great images that, that maybe just got burned into my mind. But I think of a lot of fans, like there's the, the glove that the creeping out of the bathtub water there's the marshmallow stairs that, that Nancy gets stuck in as she's trying to run away. There's, of course, a, a bed full of blood that just explodes and, and sprays itself all over a room. All these scares like feel very flesh and blood, and like it's just an icky movie. Like this movie has got lots of like fluid in it. It seems like a very messy set overall. And it's so weird that it eventually like the series turned funny. You know, and maybe like the scene where Freddy gets like home alone was a precursor. But like this movie is like a, a definitely a testament that like Wes Craven really did have the occasional mean streak in him, like especially in his in his younger years and like thinking back to like Hills Have Eyes. Heather Lagenkamp definitely was in the mold of the girl from the Funhouse back then, like this like wholesome baggy shirt, good girl next door. The music in the film I thought was really strong. It's really driving and dark with this weird 80s like bells and whistles in it. And I also really want to call it that I think they pace the reveal. You know, I, I was thinking about this a lot when I was watching movies this week that a lot of these films really are just like a mashup of like a monster movie and a whodunit. Like there's always like a mystery at the heart of it. And I think they do an exceptional job at kind of pacing out the backstory of, of Freddie. And, you know, by the time they actually kind of reveal his origin, I feel like there's this weight of this burden that the parents have passed on to their kids. And it feels like it has like a real meaningful weight about transitioning from a teenager to a to an adult. So in short, many sequels have dulled the blades of this series to more of an annoyance than anything else. But I actually think the original still feels shocking and chilling and somehow kind of fresh in a way that still has the power to produce nightmares. Awesome. Well said, Rich. A lot of good stuff in there. I look forward to digging into it more. But first, let me tell you about the movie that it's up against, and then we'll kind of chat about both of these films in turn. Please do. (laughs) I can't wait to compare box office numbers. Let's just start there. Uh, (laughs) Silent Night, Deadly Night, in its opening weekend, made $2.5 million. Versus, I think you said, and I'm seeing on Wikipedia, 1.27. Now, that was a more limited release for Nightmare. And ultimately, of course, uh, Nightmare has been much more financially successful. But, uh, you know, records are records. 
So anyway, Silent Night, Deadly Night was released by TriStar Pictures on November 9th. I guess that was the date that we were looking for. 1984, the Mothers of America reacted with outrage to the killer Santa Claus depicted in its promotional material and content. In addition to receiving extremely negative reviews, the film was pulled from theaters, which you don't see happen, a week after its release. But it had already made its money, as I just said. It grossed $2.5 million on a budget of just $750,000. And of course, since then, it's developed a cult following. There's been a series of sequels, four of them, in fact. Uh, I've only seen one and two, and there was a loose remake in 2012. And theoretically, a reboot is in the works right now. If this movie were to get another episode, which I doubt, we could talk about the controversy it sparked in more detail, the fact that Gene Siskel tried to shame the individual people responsible for it by naming them on his show, which I think is kind of shitty, but I get that he was outraged. Uh, Leonard Moulton said, what's next? The Easter Bunny as a child molester? Which I find kind of funny. And the LA Times' Michael Wilmington wrote, it's safe to predict that Silent Night, Deadly Night will start making worst movie of all time lists almost immediately. For me, all of that kind of feels like a hysterical overreaction. I know that this is a distasteful, grubby little movie with a bad reputation in some circles to this day. But I, for one, have always had a real fondness for it, and I still do. I think it kind of transcends the slasher subgenre in some respects, as the world of this movie is a cursed place. We don't just have one or two bad guys here. It could be argued that most of the speaking parts have some degree of responsibility for what happens. The one or two adults who might not qualify as bad in some way, or flawed at least, deeply flawed, really stand out in this movie. It's a dark and fucked up and shockingly dangerous vision of middle America. And that's probably why people found it so disturbing at that time. They couldn't handle it. From the ironically cloying Christmas song that we open with to the seemingly senile grandpa who turns malevolent when left alone with his grandson, it's clear right away that poor Billy is doomed to inhabit a nightmare realm. I want to tell you a few things about the movie. The poster depicted Santa's arm emerging from a chimney with a fire axe in his hand. And the tagline was, you've made it through Halloween. Now try to survive Christmas. <laughs> the IMDb logline is, little Billy witnesses his parents getting killed by Santa after being warned by a senile grandpa that Santa punishes those who are naughty. Now Billy is 18 and out of the orphanage, and he has just become Santa himself. There are a few recognizable faces in the cast, most notably a very young Linnea Quigley. She only gets one scene, but she has a few lines and a kill that is widely, widely considered to be classic in the slasher oeuvre. The film was directed by Charles E. Sellier Jr. Could be Sellier, but I'm going to go with Sellier. He's a household name to all of you, right? <laughs> no? Oh, okay. Well, here's an excerpt from his IMDb bio. Cellier skillfully pioneered market testing and four-walling, 
which is renting a theater to show his films, thereby enabling him to keep all the profits for himself, which garnered him the distinction in the 1970s of having more pictures in the top 50 independent grocers than any other independent producer. But directing was not really this dude's bag. His only other narrative feature credits were the lightly seen Snowballers and a film called, a genre film, called The Annihilators. Now that is a box cover that I do kind of remember seeing at the video store, but I'd never rent, I've never rented it, not even as a kid or a, a teen. So this is the movie that I associate with this guy. How did it do? Pretty darn well, I think. And I, I think I've never seen a slasher movie go to such great lengths to create the long chain of dominoes that fall in order to trigger its killer. I think that's one of the, the first things I think of with this movie. It might not all be textbook psychology or entirely believable, but I do really respect the film's effort to make us understand why this Santa Claus killer snaps. And at least we see what drives him. And as grimy and objectionable as some aspects of the movie are, there is an element of tragedy to what goes down, and the movie recognizes that and leans into it. The tragedy is witnessed by the otherwise ineffectual but thematically important character of the kindly nun. I think you need a, a ray of light in the darkness to really make a dark film's pitch blackness register as such. And this movie gets that in the form of the nun, some innocent children, and a couple of other key moments that stand out. All in all, I think this is easily one of the top 10 to 15 most striking slasher movies. I would enjoy digging into it in greater detail. Certainly doing a show on the subject with spoilers would be fun. I don't think that's in the cards, but I think I want to give a tip of the cap to this weird and disturbing film. Vic, what do you think about it? Or you're free to weigh in on either movie or both. When I watch Silent Night, Deadly Night, I had I'm sure I saw this when I was a, a kid again trolling the uh, the the horror shelves at Blockbuster or whatever. I know I saw it then because that scene with the grandpa has stuck with me my whole life. And it's the the much of the rest of the movie is is I agree sort of shocking and there's there's stuff to to dissect in there. But that opening is horrifying and i think especially as if you're 10 11 12 watching that opening uh it really gets a hold of you and i agree john the attention paid to the killer and his motivations and i wanted to point this out too because i know this has come up uh many many times in our discussions of slasher films to me this is a good use of sex and nudity as a way to add depth and motivation to the character i felt like it was earned uh to to a certain extent uh, in this film in a way that it's not in a lot of slashers, where it's just like, hey, let's take off our team. <laughs> right. let's, let's go swimming, but we don't have our swimsuits. Like, <laughs> no one says that in this. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's, I, I agree. I mean, it's a, it's a strange little movie that has a very haunting quality to it. Uh, I, would, I would not argue with that. Is this our first Linnea Quigley sighting in the competition? I believe it may be. We didn't. We yeah. haven't done Return of the Living Dead. Obviously, we haven't done Sorority Babes in the Slimeball Bolorama. <laughs> Wait, we haven't. <laughs> Somehow that hasn't made it. <laughs> John, we got we got to reseed the tournament, man. <laughs> 
Uh, when we do evil little genie movies, that would probably make it towards the bottom. <laughs> I will say, Rich, like, I have all my notes from Nightmare on Elm Street, and you hit, like, all of them. And so I don't want to spend too much time on that. I will note in, in just an, an interesting juxtaposition between you and me. You noted that, that Nancy's traps were Home Alone-esque, whereas I have uh, her Nancy's Predator-esque traps. <laughs> uh, I, I feel like that speaks volumes about us. <laughs> I, was, I, was going, I was going truly meta. My Home Alone reference was actually an Us reference. <laughs> oh, yes. Nice. What's that? Uh, but that's fair. They're predator-esque. I don't know. They're, they're pretty domestic. They're all house-based booby traps. Well, she, does have, she does have to read a book about it. She's working with the materials at hand, which is which I feel like is 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 what uh-huh. makes it sort of feel predator-esque to me. And it is she a military order, book. You don't have to order anything, right? Uh, although Nancy with a with a minigun does feel sort of like an appealing uh, third act twist. I'd like to I, see I Nancy like... with painless. Exactly. There, there was definitely something about booby traps in the eighties. Like it was pretty. Like it was yeah. definitely. I was aware as a ten-year-old that clearly books about booby, like big, thick books about booby traps, were readily available at any library. And like, I just had to be a teenager <laughs> to get a hold of one. I think that's a Vietnam thing. That's a Vietnam so, thing. Yeah, that that actually makes sense. Mm-hmm. Silent Night, Daily Nights. A, it's an interesting one. I definitely saw that. I saw at least part of that movie at 10 or 12 i certainly identified in watching the film that i was like oh my god like i was definitely the age of this kid when this like movie came out and i know i saw it on home video at some point and like my like i like with my parents and like we basically got to the point where like five minutes in when they encounter like the first like bad santa so to speak and like my parents were like, okay, not this one. But, <laughs> yeah, so like, that was that. That was over like pretty quick. And I came back and saw it uh, a few years later. I think that the points you guys make are are good. There is a sort of like a, a vague sense in this movie that like this movie could not really hold my interest. I agree with you that they used the sexual deviancy, which don't get me wrong, the sexual deviancy on display in this movie is impressive and frequent. Like how often they go to that well. Um, is really impressive, um, or at least bold. But ultimately, like I felt like it was pretty redundant. Like once we introduce the kid again as like kind of like a, a dunderhead, like twenty year old musclehead. Like at, at that point, like I kind of like lost interest in like the development of his character, so to speak. But I did kind of enjoy like that progression from from childhood backstory up to that. But once he got into like the Christmas store, I wasn't engaged. I will say I really I've always like strongly identified with his catchphrase in this film. You know, he runs around just shouting punish. Yes. Yes. Punish. <laughs> like, it's like it's the most like monotone uh, delivery that you could give. And just like the most like bald faced generic like I'm going to murder you statement. It's just punish. Um, and I love the way that he just barges into rooms. Like he's he's always like a a surprise like a bushwhack killer where like you've just opened a door and it's just like punish like axe to the stomach. The kills themselves, other than Linnea quickly, like I don't know that I'd I'd call like especially memorable. And I also just want to point out that you know there's there's certainly a novelty in seeing uh, Santa gunned down. 
uh, but they're still not doing it quite as well as like Cronenberg did in, in Rabbit. There have been a lot of good uh, Santa murders over the years in, in horror films, um, you know, but that's a high bar. Like just killing a guy in a Santa suit is not good enough to get my attention. I just wanted to say that. <laughs> I have a couple of points I want to make, and, I, and I'm trying not to lose all of them. Uh, first off, I think it's interesting that structurally this movie is actually very similar to Rob Zombie's Halloween. Oh, Vic, I love you so much, man. This is why we do the podcast. You and I don't agree on everything, but you just hit it right the fuck out of the park. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, second, now, Rich, you've just given me this idea that I love the idea that they're – because they do at one point – spoiler alert – they do at one point gun down the wrong Santa. And I would have liked a like a Halloween 2 style or Halloween 4 style mob just going around <laughs> shooting Santas. Yeah. <laughs> that was a Ben Tramer moment. There's no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been pretty great. Um, Rich, the last thing, all right, I, I, I'm so delighted. I remember all of them. Rich, the last thing I want to say, I love the idea that you, there you were as a kid with your parents, you're watching Silent Night, Deadly Night. You get to the first bad Santa, right? And your mom's like, ah, all right, turn this off. Sorry, Rich, this is not appropriate. Do you want to watch Blood Feast again? <laughs> 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 that's what i mean like yeah you do basically just summed up my childhood that's so awesome rich but that speaks to the power of this film i mean it is truly fucking disturbing and traumatic it's disturbing yeah I'll, I'll give it that even if, if i we're judging based on just if, if yeah. we're judging based on disturbingness like this movie will knock uh nightmare which you know, Nightmare like failed to sort of embrace like the the child molester angle that like Craven really wanted in it. That's right. Um, you know, like where I say Silent Night Daily Night is is going for the throat. Yeah, I mean, I look. We can try to build up suspense about the outcome of this. Uh, as much as I love Silent Night Deadly Night, I'm not voting for it over over Nightmare on Elm Street. But let's keep talking about it a little bit more. You know, maybe in a different world, it would have gotten more time in our, in our tournament, but it, it, it is such a fascinating film in some ways. I think one of the things as, you know, I was going to say, and, and Vic mentioned, it's almost a film with such distinct acts like Halloween, the Rob Zombie Halloween, where we are very few of these films follow the killer through early childhood and really establish what's going on psychologically and I love that about this movie. And I love that, like, it, the movie invites us to have compassion for this killer in a strange way that I don't think, you know, gl- glorifies anything he's doing, of course. And as fucked up as this movie is, I feel confident in saying that. But we kind of get that this guy is just tormented. And it somewhat reminds me of both Maniac movies, but especially the Elijah Wood one, where he's just like if the universe and fate had given him more of a break, he would not be the person doing these things. It's not like he just is sadistic or, you know, gets off on it or something like that. He's tortured, tormented. You know, it's not even like by taking the mantle of Santa that suddenly he's empowered and can feel 
you know, realized and now the victim shoe is on the other foot or something. There's not even like a wish fulfillment aspect. He's like the grim, begrudging instrument of the universe's morality that he feels obligated to play out. And you see it like when he when he meets that little girl and she passes his tests and he's perfectly happy to leave her alive, right? I have a real sympathy for this guy because I I feel like in this evil universe, like 12 things happen to make him become this, this killer. And if any, you know, even a couple of them had gone the other way, he, he might've come out of it. He's, he had no ill will in his heart for anyone. And so that's what I was alluding to with the, the tragic element is that, yeah, this isn't just, you know, another sniveling pervo murderer like he feels like he's he's doomed to become the implement of cosmic justice or something that's interesting did you you not notice his huge erection as soon as he put on the santa suit (laughs) for the the rest of the movie no i'm kidding Um, (laughs) i'm sorry go ahead (laughs) i definitely have nothing to go off of that comment (laughs) well now now that we're what you thought i was going to chime in on but it's not going to (laughs) happen You don't want to talk about erections in Santa suits? Come on. <laughs> Santa's erection? Come on. Just sit on his lap, right? There, right? <laughs> I did want to say, because the, the Halloween comparison, I think, is sort of apt because it really ties into what Rich was saying, which is that, like the zombie movie, it you have this character study for the first half of the film that then gives way to a very compressed slasher film. Yep. And and the the character study is sort of better than the slasher film. It's not that the slasher film is without merit. It's not that it's, you know, it's not unsettling and and creepy. I think we've made that clear. But that it is a movie that is just bisected and one half is is sort of plainly more unsettling and and interesting than the other. I don't totally agree with that. yeah, I, I mean, I feel like that describes Zombies Halloween as well, if I remember our, well, our podcast. I think it describes Zombies Halloween more than it describes this movie. I don't I don't think it's as stark of a difference in this movie. I mean, I, I think a lot of good stuff happens with the adult character. I thought that the zombie movie is, is burdened by the fact that it tries to cram 80% of the original Halloween into, you know, a third of its running time. Well, this doesn't have that, that burden. And I think that the adult character stuff, I guess I'm disagreeing with rich. You can weigh in rich when I'm done, but I thought that there's a lot of great stuff in the, in the second half of this movie, the father climbing up into his daughter's window who nearly gets shot by police is an interesting scene. The, that's where we have the payoff with the, the nuns, both the mother superior and the kindly nun realizing what's happening with this, this boy who was in their charge before. Obviously, the Linnea Quigley scene. Um, I even think the dynamics in the toy store, it's a kooky extended sequence, but I kind of like those characters. By the way, I had the Job of the Hut playset that you can see in the background on the, on the shelves in that scene. 
I think I, I think I had that same playset. Yeah. Is that the one that you, you press the button and like yes. the floor would open up? Yeah. yeah. I had that. I saw that on the shelf. I'm like, damn. Oh yeah, I remember that. And we could talk like at length about the sequence involving the lovers that he kills and the sort of dynamics going on there, which are kind of classical tr- slasher traditional stuff, but it's interesting the way it plays out, the, like how he ends up killing the the girl as well as the guy who was raping her. Like It's just a very, you know, there's a lot, like these aren't just simplistic, rote slasher movie sequences. I mean, I'll give you that and that there's not like a total randomness to it. I mean, I don't know. Linnea Quigley is definitely a little like, he just kind of like bursts into their in, Yeah, but she has a world. little sister and the, there's the asshole boyfriend who, you know, keeps talking about, I'll kill you if you've done this or that. Like, there's just like weird little subtle choices. I'm not going to take that away from you. I think it's just that like we're talking about a movie, you know, another thing that I'd say that maybe is or isn't like a parallel to the zombie Halloween is that the thing is, is that you spend the first third of the movie developing a character and then that character becomes sort of like a zombie more or less. And like, it's not like the character of Billy continues to develop once you introduce him as an adult, well, you know, comes a slasher. Um, well, yeah, and I don't, I don't know exactly what you'd expect a, a slasher to do. I'm just saying that, like, when we were talking about, like, the engaging, like, psychological nature of it, I'm just saying, like, that psychological nature sort of dissipates well, one of you the, get to him as, as an adult. One of the interesting things, though, that I always look for in any kind of film about a killer, and this kind of reminds me of more like things like uh, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer or more docudrama, more psychologically authentic films, is that... I like seeing the testing of this character's pathology against different characters. Like, we know they'll kill someone who's an asshole or who's suspicious of them. or We get all that. But what's interesting is, even though they're a sociopath, psychopath, just plain evil, however you want to figure out them as a person, are there people that they could meet and potentially bond with and not hurt, and even love. That question, that dynamic creates a tension. Is it possible that they will have mercy, compassion for someone else? Maybe even loyalty? And testing that is fascinating. And this movie has a little bit of that, like, again, with the little girl that he encounters. And I think if you can bring that degree of subtlety to the table... And play it out. You're you're playing in a higher league. And I agree with that, John. I th- I think that's the essence of the relationship between Michael and Doctor Loomis. That's mm-hmm. why I find Halloween Five the their sort of interactions, especially in Halloween Five, so fascinating. The question of is there someone Michael Myers wouldn't kill is fascinating. I'll just go out on a limb and say this is the first, at least published, discussion of Silent Night, Deadly Night that was praising this film for subtlety. <laughs> probably true (laughs) not not necessarily what i would identify as its strengths i think it's easy to to miss that i mean not to be condescending of anyone else's read of the film certainly not you guys but just like the the movie on the surface is all of these trashy exploitational things but Mm -hmm. i think when you really look at it like it's being a lot 
more generous with its characterizations and their motivations and the desire to, again, make you understand this guy and why, what brought him to this point. Yeah. Without pandering to him or, you know, like sympathy for the devil or something, I feel that he he really is a tragic figure, and I think that th- that that is inherently more interesting than the guy in fucking the burning, for example. Agreed, John. I wouldn't yeah. I wouldn't argue with a bit of that, and that's why it's going to be such a shame when I cast my vote for a Nightmare on Elm Street. Look, it's a it's a fate accompli. But any any other thoughts before we, for now, close the page on Nightmare on Elm Street, anything else like looking forward Do either of you guys feel excited to talk about it again, to watch it again? Or, you know, I'm not saying that you are, but, or conversely, are you like, I, maybe it won't go as far as we thought it would. I don't know. I'm just kicking it off. For me, maybe it's because I have I haven't watched this movie in twenty years, and I most the thing I think I remembered the most is the final shot of the film and the, the fate of like Nancy's mother, which always made me laugh as a kid. Uh, like I said, I had really written this series off, and maybe because of that, I found this feeling like really compelling. And I, for one, am interested in getting back into it again. I actually think it, it has, I think the story of, of Freddy actually has a much richer texture to it in this telling than I was anticipated uh, for. So I, I, I'm, I'm into it. I'll just say we did a, a show on this movie before. I didn't feel the need oh, to watch yeah, it. I yeah, yeah, we, we, we dealt with it in detail. I didn't feel the need to watch it again for tonight because I just had enough to say about the other movies we're talking about tonight. So I'll keep it brief. But yeah, Nightmare is a classic. I, I think it is probably better in concept and a few standout scenes than in terms of its totality as a movie. But I do love it. It's by far echoing things that Rich has said by far the scariest of the Freddy franchise for me. It's my fre- favorite incarnation of Freddy. It has the most memorably disturbing death scenes. And obviously this set the blueprint that was never bettered by any of its sequels or remakes. I can't really imagine a scenario where I would vote against it. So I'm reluctantly moving on, but I, I would say that I'll be ready to talk about the movie in more detail next time. Vic, how about you? John, I, I feel like you're forgetting about Wes Craven's new nightmare. Uh, I, talk about thankfully, the, the sequels and how it's never how it's never been bested. I mean, um. oh god. <laughs> I, I'm hoping that you're saying that uh, capriciously. What's the word? <laughs> you're saying that yeah. uh, in jest. <laughs> yes, John. If I could, if I could poke you with a stick through the computer, you that just would, that did. That would be what I would be doing right now. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're gonna have we're gonna have lots to say about a Nightmare on Elm Street. It it is a classic, and Silent Night, Deadly Night is a more worthy competitor than I probably thought coming into this matchup. And but after watching that film and, and rewatching Nightmare, but I'm kind of with Rich too. Nightmare holds up. Like I I was impressed with a lot of it. I think Craven's writing. Especially like when he's writing teenage dialogue, it can be a little cringy, but his ideas are so big. It, it carries a day. It's, a, it's a, a superior film, but don't sleep on Silent Night, Deadly Night. Go, if you haven't seen it and you like slasher films, go check it out because it's worth a look. 
Yeah, thank you, Vic. I think that's the takeaway. Maybe maybe this movie would have gone farther if it was matched up against something else. Check out the film. Okay, for the first time, I'm going to acknowledge on the night of our recording that we're going to end this episode or this part of the episode here. We've been doing this long enough to know the way the shows are edited and released. So, gentlemen, let's say goodbye to our listeners for now. We'll take a break and come back for part two. Adios. Adios.